Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies that brings scholarly and diplomatic expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. My name is John Torpy, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Today, we discuss the Eurovision Song Contest with Dean Vuletic, a historian of the Research Center for the History of Transformations uh, at the University of Vienna. He's the author of Post-War Europe and the Eurovision Song Contest, which deals with the historical and political importance of the annual contest in the post-war era. His current research focuses on the the Intervision Song Contest, an alternative to Eurovision created in Eastern Europe during the Cold War. Professor Vuletic uh, holds a PhD from Columbia University and designed the first ever course syllabus for the Eurovision Song Contest, which was taught at New York University. He speaks with us today from Vienna, having just returned from Rotterdam, where this year's Eurovision Song Contest took place over the past week. Thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today, Dean Vuletic. Thank you, John. As we say in the Eurovision world, this is Vienna calling. Great. Well, good to have Vienna on the line. So... First of all, let's try to help our audience uh, understand the Eurovision Song Contest a little better than they may at present. Um, to an out, to an audience outside of Europe, you know the contest is pretty widely unknown, uh, or if it is known, is kind of understood as sort of a kitschy, campy uh, event. Um, yet you argue this annual event where each European country nominates a pop music act and then all countries vote for a winner is a cultural and political phenomenon of major significance. Could you tell us more about what you have in mind? Well, Eurovision was founded in 1956, first of all, as a technical experiment, an attempt to broadcast simultaneously and live uh, a television show that would be watched across Western Europe. The organizers of Eurovision then and still today uh, believe that the contest is non-political or they present it as having non-political aims. Nonetheless, because the entries have always represented states, the contest has been a stage for the playing out of international relations. And this we've seen, for example, in the uh, themes of certain entries but especially in the voting. All of Europe stops to watch the voting results in Eurovision every year, and the voting is always analysed for the political meanings of the connections between the voting results of different states. I should also point out that uh, for a long time, Eurovision was considered a kitschy event, But I think that this term kitsch is in itself uh, full of meaning. Uh, Milan Kundera calls kitsch the ultimate aesthetic of totalitarian regimes. And for me, one very interesting aspect of my research is how dictatorships have used Eurovision to whitewash their international images or to gain some sort of uh, commercial and political benefit internationally. Thanks for that explanation. Um, That's very helpful. Um, But I'm sort of curious. I mean, very early on, the contest was really between, I think, seven countries. 
and over time has expanded to include something like 39 countries, some of which are not geographically in Europe. So I wonder if you could explain how that's happened and what that's all about. The basis for participation in Eurovision is uh, states belonging to an area known as the European Broadcasting Area, which was defined in the interwar period um, along the lines of uh, 40 degrees uh, longitude east and 30 degrees latitude north. So this includes North Africa and uh, the Levant. It extends all the way from Iceland to just beyond Moscow. And the reason for the definition of this technical area in the interwar era was for the organization of radio frequencies. Now, this has essentially remained the uh, basis for the organization of international uh, cooperation in broadcasting ever since. And it is also the basis for membership of the European Broadcasting Union, the Association of Public Service National Broadcasters, which uh, organizes the Eurovision Song Contest every year for its members. So essentially, belonging to Eurovision is based on a very technical definition. I see. I mean, I guess to a relative uh, novice in Eurovision matters, uh, the thing that comes to mind as a kind of point of comparison is soccer. Um, and, you know, soccer has this kind of national uh, character to it in, in much of the European organization of the sport. Um, but it's never had, as far as I can recall, I mean, the kind of significance, let's say, that it's had in Latin America where there have been so-called soccer wars and things like that. There have been. Um, but is it the same? Especially in the former Yugoslavia. <laughs> Okay. Well, I, maybe I wasn't aware of that. But uh, I mean, I'm just sort of wondering how you see the political significance of these of the song contest, uh, you know, in comparison to something like soccer, which is much more, it seems to me, straightforwardly nationalistic in a certain sense. I mean, not the Champions League, but, you know, the national, the world, the European Cup and that sort of thing. Of course, soccer is a very good um, example of a lot of the same uh, trends that we see going on in, in Eurovision. And we have to remember that Eurovision is the biggest uh, cultural mega event in Europe as the longest running and one of the most popular uh, television shows that is uh, broadcast here and which attracts now around 200 million viewers uh, annually. I've uh, spoken with the European Commissioner for this portfolio called uh, Promoting the European Way of Life, this uh, newly created portfolio, Margarita Schinas, and he has said to me that there are only two big events which bring Europeans together, the Champions League and the Eurovision Song Contest. So certainly uh, Eurovision as a mega event also shares many parallels with this uh, big soccer event. Um, and barracking for one's uh, nation is uh, certainly part of it. The big differences are that uh, Eurovision entries are selected on the basis of their singing talents, whereas in soccer, you know, the selection um, is done very differently. Soccer players aren't um, selected by popular vote. For example, their, their um, advancement depends on their talents, um, so in Eurovision, you get a lot of uh, public involvement in terms of the voting in the national selection and then in terms of the final voting uh, in Eurovision as well. 
which um, is interesting because in the final voting, uh, you can't vote for your own country. So the country which you're calling from, uh, you cannot vote for. The other big difference between Eurovision and, let's say, soccer is that um, soccer is very gendered. Uh, the focus, media focus, is largely on the male soccer teams, even though in Europe today, uh, UEFA, for example, is trying to uh, give more attention to uh, female soccer competitions as well. But still, the most of the attention, the big money, is with the male teams. Eurovision is very different, of course. You know, we have uh, women and men participating alongside each other. Historically, there have been more female performers in the contest and more female winners. And um, in the past um, around two decades, we've also seen a lot of acts performed by members of sexual minorities um, getting a lot of attention and even winning the contest. And indeed, Eurovision has historically been very popular among the gay community in Europe. Uh, for a long time, the contest wasn't open about uh, that part of its fandom, but with all of the social and political changes in Europe regarding uh, the rights of sexual minorities in, in uh, recent years, uh, Eurovision has also become more comfortable with that. And uh, now the hosts very often even refer to the fact uh, that gay men especially are big fans of Eurovision. Interesting. So I'm sort of curious about, you know, the careers that the people who win this competition or who simply participate in it, you know, what becomes of them? I mean, I think there's some sort of critique that these are kind of one hit wonders and, and don't really go on to great careers. But I gather there's an Icelandic performer who uh, has had a great hit, you know, during the pandemic, despite not having been able to, I guess, per perform it in last year's competition, which of course wasn't held. So, uh, I mean, I have to confess, I'm a little outside my swim lane here. And, uh, you know, uh, I guess there are some American Idol participants who go on to, you know, significant careers, but I don't think it's particularly common. So I wonder how, you know, would you compare it uh, to something like American Idol in terms of the careers that the people have? Well, it depends. Let's say Eurovision has launched some big hits. For example, in the late 1950s, the most successful entry to come out of Eurovision was Domenico Modugno's Volare, which uh, still today is the world's most successful non-English language uh, pop song. It also launched ABBA when ABBA won in 1974. Uh, it launched Celine Dion in the late 1980s. So there have been some uh, big stars, big hits to have come out of Eurovision, but they're more the exception than the rule. Generally speaking, the acts that are sent to Eurovision are high-profile, usually high-profile uh, national personalities who come to Eurovision probably won't have much success internationally with their song, but because of their participation in Eurovision, they'll use that to advance their careers in a national or regional context. So it's not as if they are one-hit wonders. They might be one-hit wonders in an international context, but when it comes to the national local setting, then certainly um, the Eurovision singers have usually been uh, more successful. And I should point out that you know, why, why 
why we might see Eurovision as an international stage, there are also a lot of these regional blocks in Europe that um, are, let's say, sub-regions of the Eurovision world. And uh, many of the Eurovision singers use their Eurovision performances to uh, promote their international image on a regional level. For example, if you have a Croatian singer, they're more likely to use the Eurovision stage to promote themselves to an international audience in other parts of the former Yugoslavia, such as Serbia, Bosnia and Herzegovina, Slovenia, where Croatian uh, popular music is also widely consumed. Interesting. I mean, this all raises, I guess, for me, certain questions about, you know, what popular music is popular around the world. And, you know, I think it's incontestably the case that American and British popular music have, you know, in many ways been the most successful on a kind of global scale. Uh, You know, my friend Tom Cushman wrote a book called Rock Around the Block, which was Mm -hmm. about the role of rock and roll in kind of dismantling uh, communism behind the Berlin behind the Berlin Wall, the Iron Curtain. Um, And, you know, I mean, this probably has something to do with the worldwide prevalence of English as a language uh, in part. But, of course, it's part of what made English that, you know, most prominent uh, global language as well. So, you know, I wonder what you would say about, you know, that question, which kind of, who, you know, which sort of national or, or cultural uh, product kind of is more successful in this. I mean, it's interesting. I didn't know that about Volare, which I learned, I guess, really basically when I was in Italy, living in Italy for a year, about 25 years ago. Uh, and you can certainly imagine, you know, it's a very catchy, kind of danceable song. Um, but there aren't that many like that, certainly not that come out of Italy. Um, so, so I wonder, you know, what you would say about the cultural transportability, so to speak of different, you know, musical culture, popular musical cultures. I think what is great about Eurovision and the fact that it has been held every year, almost without fail until last year because of the pandemic is that because we have, um, you know, 65 years of the contest uh, to study, we can really see how different uh, national cultures have um, influenced European popular culture. So we can see the different waves. So, for example, if we go back to the late 1950s, Eurovision itself was um, inspired by the Sanremo Italian Song Contest, which had been started in 1951. This was the model that the organizers of Eurovision looked to, to uh, set up Eurovision. Then, as I mentioned, and as you discussed, uh, Volare became uh, one of the biggest hits to come out of Eurovision um, in the late 1950s. It also won a Grammy Award for Best Song of the Year, the first ever Grammy Award, I should point out, uh, which no non-English language song has uh, ever done since. But also in in the late 1950s, in the 1960s, you see French language songs as being especially successful in the contest. This is a time when French popular culture is still widely consumed in Europe. Then in the 1970s, you really see an Anglo wave uh, coming in. Um, 
the the influence of American and British popular popular music, especially on the songs. This is a time when um, entries still have to be sung in their national languages. That that language. Uh, rule was abrogated in 1999. But nonetheless, we see the influence, for example, of um, American um, pop folk, uh, you know, from the late 1960s, the student movements, the hippie movement. This all comes out in Eurovision entries as well. Then what we see in the mid-1960s, actually for a brief period of a few years, when uh, the language rule was um, abrogated, um, after the Nordic states put pressure on the European Broadcasting Union to change the rule because they wanted to sing in English, thinking that their languages were not euphonious enough to um, to attract votes uh, from uh, the national juries. So this is why we had ABBA perform in 1974 um, in English. Uh, ABBA performed Waterloo and won then. And then we see the rise of Sweden as a popular music power internationally. And um, Sweden is now the uh, third biggest exporter of popular music globally. And uh, one of the big uh, reasons for this is its success in Eurovision, first of all, with ABBA um, and in the last uh two decades with uh, several other entries. And actually Swedish uh, composers and lyricists play a huge role in the production of uh, Eurovision entries for other states these days. So, you know, there has been this Swedish wave in international popular music as well, and that's something that Eurovision has certainly highlighted. In the 1990s, we also had Ireland win Eurovision four times. That proved to be rather somewhat of a financial burden for Ireland then when it still wasn't experiencing its uh, Celtic Tiger um, economic boom. But uh, nonetheless, that also uh, put a focus on the Irish popular music industry, Irish acts, which are very strong, like uh, U2 and Westlife, Sinead O'Connor, um, the heads of some of these artists uh, even appeared as puppets uh, in uh, one of the Eurovisions that was staged in uh, Ireland in the 1990s as an homage to, you know, great Irish figures that have made an impact internationally. So even Ireland, which is um, a rather small country by Eurovision standards, has uh, left its impact on uh, European popular culture through popular music and uh, through Eurovision especially. And in recent years, I think what we've seen is a Russian wave. Russian artists, artists have done extremely well in Eurovision, uh, coming first in uh, 2008. In the last 10 years, they've also finished highly second or third in, uh, in many cases. Um, and this is also an expression of the fact that Russia has a very important popular music industry, which is still very regionally um, concentrated in countries of the former Soviet Union. But nonetheless, the ambitions of Ru Russian artists, the resources that Russian television and music companies have put into producing Eurovision entries, the biggest, I would say, uh, resources of any entry, um, have demonstrated that the Russian popular music industry also has ambitions to, to grow internationally. And they've also reflected the fact that the Russian government is taking popular culture much more seriously in its cultural diplomatic efforts, especially as Russia has never been 
so strong um, in terms of popular culture globally, especially in comparison to the United States, the United Kingdom, or even Italy, Sweden, and South Korea. Interesting. Um, I mean, you know, this could be seen from a kind of politicians or political scientists perspective as, you know, an aspect of soft power. And maybe you could talk about it a little bit in that respect. And, you know, what role do governments play in getting involved, even though they're supposed to be, you can't vote for your own country. Uh, is this the kind of thing where there are kind of backroom shenanigans about who gets to win and bribery scandals of the soccer kind? And, you know, how does it work in the sort of arena of soft power politics? Well, it's very different in each of the states that participate because the connection between the national broadcaster and the government is uh, varies. So we have liberal democracies, you know, largely members of the European Union these days, in which uh, these are ideally separated. So there is no government influence on the choice that the national broadcasting organizations make in their organize, organization of Eurovision or in their um, organization of, of uh, anything else. But we see situations now, in, even in the European Union, in which the governments effectively control the national broadcasting organizations, especially in Poland and Hungary. Hungary is a very interesting example because it was in Eurovision until 2019, but then it withdrew from Eurovision and uh, this became um, a point of argument between the Orban regime and the liberal opposition in Hungary, some members of which allege that Hungary withdrew from Eurovision because uh, Eurovision has become too gay. So it's become too um, activist in promoting the visibility of sexual minorities. Uh, the uh, television officials from uh, Hungary haven't said anything to this effect so this can't be proven, but it's just interesting to see how Eurovision is used in this way in uh, internal politics. We also had that in Austria when the uh, bearded drag queen Conchita Wurst won Eurovision in 2014. I mean, she was uh, selected uh, by the public and, you know, very much supported by the national broadcaster, but the far-right party in Austria, the Freedom Party, was critical of uh, her because of uh, this message um, of uh, in favor of the rights of sexual minorities that she was sending. She was also calling for same-sex marriage to be allowed in uh, Austria. And um, so in internal politics, Eurovision can become a symbol uh, as well. When it comes to how governments actually use Eurovision for soft power, usually that comes into play much more when uh, a country has won Eurovision and then it becomes a big effort to stage the contest. And that's when local governments get involved as cities try to win bids to host Eurovision. Um, it's also when national governments get more involved in how they use Eurovision to promote certain images of uh, their states. So, you know, this goes way back to the beginnings of the contest, but I think probably the most interesting example of this, um, let's say in the 1960s, was when the government of uh, Francisco Franco in Spain 
really put a lot of money into the hosting of Eurovision in Madrid in 1969 at a time when uh, the government was trying to improve its image in West Western Europe, but also to promote Spain's burgeoning tourism industry, whose principal markets lay in Western Europe. So this was about, you know, whitewashing the international image of Francoist Spain and in making it a more appealing destination for Western European tourists. In uh, recent times, we've also seen the dictatorship in Azerbaijan do that in 2012 when Baku hosted Eurovision and spent the most money ever to host uh, a Eurovision song contest. Um, even redeveloping uh, a whole part of the city of Baku for the event, constructing uh, a new arena for the contest. The hope then uh, of the Aliyev government was that this would be a springboard to host even bigger uh, international mega events such as the Olympic Games, uh, but Baku's application for that was actually rejected while it was hosting Eurovision. Nonetheless, uh, Azerbaijan has go gone on to host the European Games, uh, the Formula One Grand Prix. So it did uh, serve as a way of improving or even starting uh, Azerbaijan's CV when it comes to uh, hosting international mega events. And of course, you know, this is also related to uh, the commercial interests of the government, the uh, commercial interests of uh, parties in Azerbaijan that have close ties with the government. It was also related to Azerbaijan improving its international image, an image which was not very well known until then, um, especially in Europe. Um, other organizations also tried to use the event to improve the human rights situation in Azerbaijan and especially media freedom. So never before had Eurovision been so discussed in the European Union, the European Parliament, as in 2012, when it came to Azerbaijan, leaders of the European Union issued statements telling Azerbaijan to use the event um, as an opportunity to open up, to democratize. But unfortunately, in this regard, Eurovision did not have a lasting effect. And in actual fact, media freedom has um, worsened in Azerbaijan since then. Unfortunate. But Eurovision can't do everything, I guess. <laughs> so you've just come back from Rotterdam. Uh, there was no uh, Eurovision contest last year because of the pandemic. I guess that's the first time it's been canceled since it started in 1956. So what was it like to be there and what happened? It was fantastic. I mean, the emotions, the excitement were wonderful. It was Really not that different to previous Eurovisions in the arena, I would say. A lot of um, fans came dressed up uh, in various costumes influenced by national colours and flags. Uh, there was a lot of singing and dancing in the arena, even though we were all um, only in seated areas. So uh, pr in previous years, there has been a fan area in front of the stage in which people stand up and can dance more easily and wave flags, of course. So there was a bit more restricted, um, movements were a bit more restricted this year, but uh, the emotions were still there. And uh, it felt really wonderful to be a part of that crowd again. And um, 
just to just to have people uh, singing along together and singing along to the songs or you know in the warm up before the actual contest they were playing old dutch eurovision hits which uh eurovision fans who aren't dutch speakers uh, like myself are still happen to know in even though probably my dutch is very bad but um this was a great feeling the press room was emptier than in previous years not as many journalists could travel of course um but there was still a lot of reporting on eurovision people watched uh a lot of the press conferences um on the internet so there has been a digital move in that regard and i think actually that is something that will stay that uh eurovision press conferences will com- be continue to be a hybrid event uh, it just means that more people can participate in them when there is more of this uh digital interaction going on and i think also one of the reasons why this was an exciting eurovision was that the re- voting results uh were very interesting uh for example we had a lot of uh entries that were not in english which placed highly including the italian winner zitti uh, buoni and um the french and swiss entries were uh both in the french language they also did very well and this is great because what we've had uh in recent years since the uh language rule was ab- abrogated in 1999 is that most entries have been in english and there have only been three winners including this year's one which have not been in english and i think this is uh very bad for diversity in europe there's a lot of talk about diversity in eurovision but generally that has been promoting social diversity racial diversity um immigrants um sexual diversity but linguistic diversity has really been lost and this is something that makes eurovision distinctive and the fact that the eurovision public uh this year the eurovision audience voted for so many entries uh that are not in english is i think really a strong statement on what europeans want to hear and that they want to hear uh different languages that they want to hear entries such as the ones that uh finished so highly which are produced by the performers themselves and which do not come out of some uh pop music factory in sweden for example the plastic pop songs didn't do well the songs uh with artistic meaning with a socio-political meaning were the ones that did well and uh this i think was was uh the great message to come out of uh eurovision this year the fact that a glam rock act which speaks about a rebellion won is really you know quite something um it probably also says that european society is feeling quite rebellious itself now especially following all of the restrictions that we've experienced here as a result of the pandemic this might also have um some impact on uh political changes in the future that we'll have to see but uh that europeans were really um blown away by this song about uh rebellion and you know being yourself and you know doing what you want to do is a political statement in itself
Interesting. Uh, I mean, I think a lot of people are predicting as they as expe- as happened a uh, hundred years ago. A lot of people are predicting a kind of new roaring twenties. You know that there's going to be this uh, upsurge in, in cultural innovation and and uh, excitement and that sort of thing. So maybe that's part of what we're talking about. Um, I guess uh, the question I want to sort of close with really is about. Uh, in a way, I guess the de- democratization of culture, or the the way in which the Eurovision contest may reflect a kind of democracy when it comes to uh, cultural preferences and choices. I mean, a lot of people have complained for a long time about the so-called dem- democratic deficit in the European Union as an institution, and this is a kind of different. Uh, uh, sort of thing in, in from that perspective, right? I mean, I guess every country gets to, to vote essentially now, whether it's really a representative vote, I don't know exactly. Uh, but it's a kind of democratically elected, um, you know, bunch of competitors who, who go forth into this contest. And, you know, as you were just saying, you know, the winners seem to reflect what uh, Europeans want to hear. And then that seems to be maybe more diverse than it used to be, right? Uh, whatever. And I, I, I guess, you know, in, in some ways, culture doesn't really work that way, you could say, right? I mean, high culture is defined by usually relatively, you know, privileged social groups and what their preferences are. Uh, you know, pop music isn't really like that, although there are, you know, sort of elites who argue about what's good and what's not. You know, U2 is good, but... Uh, I, don't, I, don't, I can't think of a bad example, but you, you understand what I'm saying. So I'm just sort of curious how you would, what you would say about uh, the way in which the Eurovision con- song contest, uh, how it relates to the question of, you know, what people get to hear in effect. I think this term that you mentioned, democratic deficit, is a perfect way <laughs> to um, end our conversation because this is a big issue in my book. You know, I've mentioned uh, the involvement of dictatorships in Eurovision, but there's also, you know, this question of um, who selects the entries and what do these entries actually represent? I mentioned that they uh, appear under the names of states. But we need to know, you know, the commercial interests, the political interests behind them. So, for example, the question of the democratic deficit um, is an important one when it comes to the national selection, because very often uh, the television stations will decide to just select the entries themselves, either because they don't want to organize um, a national selection out of financial reasons, or, you know, they might have won uh, Eurovision in recent years and don't want to um, have the burden of financial burden of hosting the contest again. So they'll choose a weaker entry in order to avoid winning the contest um, or because they want to advance uh, someone's commercial interests, be it their own, those of uh, music companies, those of artists. So there are a lot of um, different um, players involved here. And sometimes that provokes resentment from the uh, public because The participants in Eurovision are national public service broadcasters financed by public money. So the public thinks that it has a right to uh, decide 
which entry should represent um, it or its state uh, because it is financing these um, broadcasting organizations and uh, these broadcasting organizations are there to um, advance the public or national public and or national interest, I should say. So this is an example where you have the democratic deficit in Eurovision. You also have it um, in the European Broadcasting Union because um, when it comes to uh, the voting, for example, from 1999 to 2008, the voting was all done by public televoting. But then problems emerged, uh, especially after there were a string of winners from East European countries, and that provoked a lot of resentment from uh, West Europeans who thought that the East European publics were uh, behaving undemocratically, unmeritocratically uh, when it came to the Eurovision voting. So then the European Broadcasting Union uh, reintroduced uh, expert juries into the voting, and now the voting is determined 50% by uh, public televoting and 50% by uh, the national expert juries. But then, of course, you know, what are these jury jury members representing? Um, What are the connections between them and their colleagues um, in other juries? Very often, uh, these are musical experts who also have... uh, close interest in other countries participating in Eurovision, and you can track these relationships in their um, voting patterns as well. And as we saw this year, what the public decides can be very different to what the uh, juries decide. For example, the um, Italian entry received uh, many more votes from the public than it did from the expert juries. So there are a lot of issues related to uh, democracy here. Um, And again, this is why I think what we've seen this year is um, a victory for democracy and diversity in Europe. And this, I mean, you mentioned uh, how elites, you know, determine what high culture is, but there are also commercial interests that seem to seem to determine or think they know what um, popular uh, tastes are. And you saw that in Eurovision this year with just so many um, acts which had the same formula. So a pop song, a catchy dance pop song produced by a solo female singer. And while in some cases this, you know, reflected the um, impact of the Me Too movement, some of the entries in their themes had, you know, female empowerment um, as as um, their topic, which was, you know, certainly something to to be praised. It was more the style of a lot of these songs that suggested that the um, producers uh, really thought that, you know, a winning entry in Eurovision needed to be a very plastic uh, pop song, you know, reflecting uh, some of the most popular um, trends in popular music um, at this time, uh, which is not the case. That's not the um, uh, result that we got. So actually, you know, European uh, viewers, when it comes to Eurovision, they want to see something more diverse. Yes, they're probably also uh, consuming, you know, uh, American pop acts, British pop acts. But when it comes to Eurovision, they want to see uh, something of uh, the national cultures, uh, the various national cultures that are being represented. They want to see um, new acts 
acts which may not be new in a national context, but which will be new in an international context, like this Italian group Maneskin, which one. Um, they want to hear songs in uh, different national languages. They also want to hear songs which are, are politically and socially engaged, you know, so with issues such as those of the Me Too movement, Black Lives Matter, and, and so on. But um, they also want to hear these um, issues uh, presented creatively and perhaps with a story behind them. So the Russian entry this year also did well. Manisha, she's been very active in uh, women's rights um, issues in uh, Russia. Her song, uh, Russian Woman, was a feminist song. And it was so well done, a combination of hip-hop and Russian folk. This is what viewers of Eurovision want to see. And if I can give you one last example, I mean, Eurovision is now expanding to America. The format will be um, produced in America as the American Song Contest. Uh, the European Broadcasting Union has uh, sold the rights for this to NBC. And this has reflected um, a trend in recent years that the organizers of Eurovision have wanted to promote Eurovision um, in the United States as, you know, a new market in which Eurovision can expand. And one of the examples of this has been the fact that American artists, a very prominent American artists, have been to, invited to perform as the Interval Act uh, in Eurovision, starting with Justin Timberlake in 2016 and then continuing with Madonna in Israel in 2019. And I think that, you know, the case of Madonna really shows you what Eurovision is about because they paid a lot of money to get Madonna there. But first of all, Madonna's performance was not very good. It didn't have an impact. And um, the Eurovision fans I've spoken to have generally said, what we want to see at Eurovision is a national act. We wanted to see an Israeli act there. Or, you know, maybe an act that would have brought together Israeli and Palestinian artists. That would have been very meaningful. Madonna didn't mean anything in the Eurovision Song Contest. And the performance, you know, was uh, widely regarded as not very being a, being a very good quality. And it just drew attention away from the um, artists who were performing in the actual contest. So, you know, these Eurovision artists who may be like the Icelandic artists, you know, are these unknown acts internationally, but then come on stage from a nation of, you know, a quarter of a million and blow viewers away. That's what Eurovision is about. And that's what we need to see more. We saw a lot of that this year. And that's the way Europeans voted. So I hope that Eurovision in the future will continue to promote um, these European acts, European culture, and uh, will not uh, become some sort of Americanized event because Europeans love American culture, but there are other stages for that. Eurovision is a stage for something else. Underdogs, uh, small nations, uh, stage to produce big European acts, let's say, that will make a global impact. Fascinating. Well, we can look forward to seeing this then on the American stage sometime in the not too distant future, it sounds like, and we'll get a better understanding of it then. And then we'll invite you back and have a comparison of the Eurovision and the American contest. I'd love to, okay. I'd love to do that because I'm a bit skeptical of how the American contest will work. It will be based on state identities, mm -hmm. but you know, that's very different. Mm. 
you know that uh, national identities in Europe are very different to state identities in America. And, you know, sure. Delaware sure. competing against uh, California, well, maybe you'll have an underdog there, but it's still very different from, um, you know, Iceland or San Marino competing against the United Kingdom or Germany. Well, I hate to say it, but I think the only obvious comparison is with the beauty contests that are now mostly, you know, off the radar. But in any case, we'll have to see what happens. So let me say thanks so much to Dean Valetich for sharing his insights about the Eurovision Song Contest. It's been fascinating. Uh, remember to subscribe and rate International Horizons on SoundCloud, Spotify, Spotify and Apple Podcasts. I want to thank Meryl Sovner for her production assistance and Risto Voinoff for his technical assistance and to acknowledge Duncan McKay for, his, for sharing his song International Horizons as the theme music for the show. This is John Torpy saying thanks for joining us and we look forward to having you with us for the next episode of International Horizons.